0: I have had the experience of having children of seven-year-old children, you know, texting me all hours in the night, basically saying, Juan Carlos, if my mother is taken away, can you, can you house me, can you take care of me?
1: Socialism Podcast, hosted by the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Sarah New, and I'm the host. And on this podcast, we do monthly interviews with religious activists and thinkers, typically from a leftist perspective. And this month, we have for you a very timely interview. It's with Father Juan Carlos Ruiz, who's the co-founder of the New Sanctuary Movement. And if you don't know about the New Sanctuary Movement, it's a pretty cool organization or kind of network of churches, temples, synagogues, and volunteers who essentially provide solidarity and resources and voices and visibility towards immigrants, specifically immigrants who are facing uh, detention and deportation. So they do weekly legal clinics, they train people to accompany people to their check-ins with ICE. And those of you who don't know what ICE is, you can basically look it up. But it stands for U.S., you know, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They are the people generally read about in the news coming in, arresting people off the streets, and sending them back to different countries. So the New Sanctuary Coalition, gets started in 2007. It's grown from, like, a handful of congregations to a city-wide network that can now be on New York City. The Part of what they do also is hold sanctuaries. So... Houses of worship will open up their spaces as sanctuaries to house people who fear deportation. So Juan Cross will get into all of that more. Our interview actually covers a pretty wide range of topics. Uh, We talk about his personal journey. He's a Catholic priest, a former Catholic priest, and he was actually excommunicated. You'll find out more because he was excommunicated, I think, about four times, uh, one of which was for officiating a a same-sex wedding. So, fun fact about Juan Carlos, and now I think he's the ordained minister under ELC, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Anyhow, we talk about that. We talk about, as a person of faith, what his kind of theological perspective is on the work that New Sanctuary Movement is doing. He has some really beautiful language that um, I'm excited for people to like listen to. And we actually get into a lot of history. I, I think oftentimes, if you have these debates with some of your conservative friends or family members or coworkers it tends to boil down to well you know these people did something illegal they broke the law so we spent a lot of time actually in resuming out and looking at okay if we want to talk about morality let's look at the history of U.S. intervention in Latin America um, which is a big fuel for the you know upstream of immigrants migrants to America fleeing Places of violence, places of poverty, of for which the United States plays a large part. So there's a bit of that. We'll talk a little bit about his family and Juan Carlos Ruiz was undocumented for a period of time and what happened there and why he cares about what's going on. He's just a very cool guy. So beginning of interview, we just to give some context, we talk about this guy named Ravi Rogbir, who is the leader essentially of the new sanctuary coalition in, in OIC a few months ago was actually detained by ICE and basically like on the verge of deporting him but then there was a big protest with a lot of clergy members actually a lot of city uh, government officials and so his case is still pending but Ravi's actually a green card holder because he had some wire fraud issues in 2001 that essentially became grounds for deportation so even if you have a green card If you commit some sort of crime, you basically have no more rights to be in the United States. So uh, I'm sure you've seen him. I think he's preached at Judson Church. Anyhow, It's just really cool, I think, as a person of faith, specifically a person who's Christian, to kind of see churches in the news for something good. It's easier for those churches to be visibly pro-immigrant to declare themselves houses of sanctuary. I think if mosques were to do that, they're already under so much surveillance that it probably would not make a ton of sense. It's a good way, I think, at least specific Christians are using some of their privilege and the status they hold in America to, like, provide some shelter and sanctuary for people. So, anyhow, so that's not all the new sanctuary movement does, but I want to give you kind of a bit more of an intro into what this organization does. Another big update we have is that we have launched our Patreon page. I'm sure it's all the rage and all the podcasts you listen to. It should be in our show description, in the show notes. You can go to our Patreon page, Religious Socialism Podcasts, support us, help pay for some of our podcast production costs, and uh, yeah, do whatever you can to chip in to build the religious left. uh, We need all the capital, so to speak, that we can get. But thank you so much for listening and being part of this journey this far. This will be like another stage of development and we'll, we're excited to engage more of our listeners. Uh, we're not the most active in social media due to a variety of reasons, mainly because Devin and I are quite busy with lots of different kinds of projects. But I think Patreon page will be a way for us to really interact with people who have the means, but also the willingness to step up and contribute a little bit. So that would be awesome. And without further ado, I'm just going to start playing our recording with our interview with Juan Carlos Ruiz. Thanks for coming down, sitting, and talking with us, Juan Carlos. I just want to start asking you to tell us a little bit about the New Sanctuary Coalition and a little bit about Ravi Ragbir, because he's been in the news as of late due to his detention and what have you. So I want you to give our listeners a little bit of context.
0: Uh, well, Ravi Ragbier was hired to lead the coalition of New York City back in 2010. And basically, through his uh, stubbornness, he has made of this coalition a uh, force, as one of the judges last week uh, told our some of our members who were accompanying somebody at court. It is a force to reckon with. It is a force that is being... Uh, Acknowledge, not only in the courts, but on the streets and just about everywhere uh, here in the city nowadays. Uh, Ravi became the face uh, because of his urgent uh, appeal to a broader community, uh, to the movement here in the city that has been under attack and uh, he's been a visionary in terms of how we engage the powers that are persecuting our brothers and sisters so anything that we do at the coalition like the accompaniment like uh, the process clinic on Tuesdays which we empower the people, the community to defend themselves in court and in their check-ins and we kind of couple that with we match that with accompaniers that go with them every time they have to meet with their supervisor, with their detention officer at Federal Plaza here in New York City. Uh, we have this uh, developed this project of accompanying them because we, you know, before Trump, you know, under Obama, we wanted to make this visible,
2: mm-hmm. you know.
0: Nowadays, I don't think visibility is the case because uh, the xenophobic, racist um, rhetoric in the administration and the bullying quality has made this very evident for many people. Uh, but still, we see that the arbitrariness, that this kind of attitude, bullying attitude, gives to the official, any official, any immigration official, uh, it's it's vast. That you know anybody who goes in to check into the immigration court, or to check into the uh, their check-ins, uh, when they go into their supervise uh, supervising meetings, uh, they can check in, but they might not check out. Yeah. Uh, before the dynamic, as as I said, was a, a bit different because we wanted to give visibility. Now we really are seeing that our accompanying, our, our being present, uh, not only uh, brings some relief to the person that are that is being accompanied, but it also sends a clear, visible message to the judges mm. or to the officials that the person is linked to a larger community, mm. that the person uh, who who is being accompanied uh, has meaningful relationships uh, to the larger uh, society. And this brings more credibility in terms of uh, uh, making sure that the person is not just disappear.
1: And I understand that you are a Catholic priest as well, or you're ordained as such within the church. Is that accurate
0: or... Yeah, I was uh, ordained a Catholic Mm -hmm. priest back in 1995. Okay. Now my journey has taken me to... uh, Now I have become a minister for the Lutheran Church. The
1: Lutheran Church. Yeah.
0: Got it. And I do exercise. uh, And this is my ministry practically. Yeah. In 2006, we began talking about uh, a pastoral plan with the Catholic Church Uh, because we had already the emergency uh, in our hands. So we began, they convened, the Catholic Church convened us at San Antonio uh, Mexican-American Cultural Center, which is the place kind of for liberation theology here on the north Mm. uh, of the continent. And they convened us to come up with a, uh, to design a pastoral plan that will give some relief to the millions to the already millions of people that were kind of languishing for some hope and for some kind of remedy in terms of their uh, in uh, in terms of their immigration status. Uh, so they convened us on 2006 and that's when I met uh, Reverend Alexia Salvateria which is also a a Lutheran minister out in Los Angeles. Then and we began talking about this witness of Elvira Arellano who had already taken sanctuary in St. Al- Adalberto's Methodist Church in Chicago. And we basically said after being cooked up in a room for three days and not coming to any kind of perfect pastoral plan, we pointed to that fact, you know, uh, as we were walking meandering uh, around the snaky uh, San Antonio's River uh, we talk about, you know, we should open our churches and do as Elvira did and basically give voice to the Elviras of our day and we began planning Uh, so it was right then in 2006 that we came to an agreement that we were going to do that, she was going to do, open the church and to lend our microphones and begin listening to the narrative of the people that were being persecuted and the people that were here in our midst already, living, growing families on different sides of, of the border, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, so we began talking about a, a, a movement that really will open our temples, our churches, our synagogues, Uh, by giving them uh, the microphones and amplifying their voices uh, in the steps of Elvira Orellano and so we agreed that to have a conference call at the end of 2006 which we did uh, so we committed ourselves to bring some of our friends into the conference call Uh, and for my surprise we ended up with about 35 people on the phone call Uh, people from all walks of life Organizers, uh, you know, the Lawson Brothers were on the phone call. They were part of the civil rights movement. Uh, Reverend Slim was on the phone call, who was part uh, of, uh, of uh, what was going on in Chicago mm-hmm. with the sanctuary, uh, with the sa- physical sanctuary of Elvira Rayano. She, was, she had taken refuge And Just
1: to clarify, with the physical yes. sanctuary component, so from my understanding is that um, it's a place where people can go and where government officials are technically not allowed to come in and, and remove someone from the premises. Is that sort of what it means to be a physical sanctuary?
0: Yes. It, it is for us. I, I, I think for the movement, it's a visible platform where not only the person that is taking physical sanctuary yeah. mm-hmm. can stand in dignity and can denounce the practices of our government that are really tearing their families, mm-hmm. uh, that, that is sending them back to countries that they haven't been around, that they, you know, that are forcing them to move back uh, to places where many times their children, they don't even know, and that their children are going to be put in danger. Mm-hmm. So it's this platform, uh, which is under the protection as a sensitive space, according to the memorandum on 2014, by the government, hmm. that these places had to be respected, together with uh, hospitals and schools.
1: And do ICE has there been any instance of ICE not respecting those boundaries or sort of policing the boundaries? Like, can, for instance, if I were to take sanctuary in Judson, would I, would there be fear of me sort of leaving premises if I was being watched or followed, or could I kind of go in and out and have this be the home base? I'm sort of curious logistically how yeah, it
0: works. When we talk about physical sanctuary, we talk about kind of a house arrest. The mm-hmm. person is confined okay. to the physical property. Of the church or of the. Are temple. there people
1: who are here in Jetson now who are living? Right here? now, no. No. no.
0: Okay. No. But we there about they are
1: about eight the hundred from last time I read.
0: There are eight hundred churches, churches or temples that give. Okay. Not necessarily there are people living. I think we have sure. about forty people publicly. Okay. In sanctuary right now across twenty five states.
1: But then there are some that are not public.
0: And there are some like here in New York. I think we have about ten people that we know of, Mm -hmm. that are not public, but that have found refuge in different uh, temples and churches. And it's really basically an open defiance Mm -hmm. to uh, what the government is doing in terms of separating our families, in terms of investing on the machinery of uh, deportation and detention. Mm. Uh, We keep decrying the fact that if we put the money in ter- for a solution, it will be less expensive, and it will be it will enhance the quality of life of everybody here in North America than in you know that's because right now Homeland Security if you look at the budget it's out of control, mm-hmm. and not only that but it does basically uh, uh, affects our children, U.S. born children, eh, which is uh, estimated between. 3 million to 5 million U.S. children that are being affected uh, in a a really traumatic way. I mean, just think about the sense of you going to school, wondering that when you come back, you know, is your mama or your father going to be there Mm. for you when you come back from school? Or are they going to be able to come back from their work you know because most of these people are working practically because they are raising families yeah. uh, and i mean i have had the experience of having children of seven year old children you know texting me uh, all hours in the night basically saying juan carlos if my mother is taken away can you can you house me can you take care of me i mean these are questions from you know, in the mouths of seven years old. I mm. mean, we shouldn't be putting our children through this.
1: What, as a person of faith, we're now you're in the Lutheran tradition, what sort of strengths or resources do you draw upon to do this work? Yeah, I'm curious. Theologically or sacramentally? Or you what know, happens?
0: theologically, I, I think we have a whole... Theology of uh, presence—that kind of backs us up—that we need to be present, you know, as this mystical body of Christ, this mystical body of God. I mean, we need to put our flesh and skin uh, Mm -hmm. with the most, uh, with the least among us, as you know, as the Bible tells us. Uh, You know, how do we uh, that? And the whole sense that in every person there is this divinity, uh, that this person has this image of our God that has to be respected and upheld. And any kind of policy, any kind of uh, threat by any government, or even by our religious institutions that goes against that,
2: Mm -hmm. is really
0: an offense, uh, a slap on the face of God. And we need to be clear about that. Hmm. Also, this whole sense, you know, faith is a way of looking at uh, the individual, the person. So when you have a faith that doesn't allow you to minimize the person to uh, his or her mistakes, because we have a lot of people who are being criminalized, and thus their immigration status is more uh, urgent, you know, or that they are in a more uh, more of a danger of being detained you know but when you have a faith that doesn't allow these systems of oppression to label somebody as he is or she is unredeemable she is or he is not going to rehabilitate himself or herself then you have really a weapon a resource in your hands to really look at the person and look at that dignity of the person and have (laughs) or organize or have policies that really respect that personhood, Hmm. okay? That really upheld his and her dignity, okay? So uh, when we have this kind of restorative uh, faith-based look at the person, We cannot allow anything in his or her past to reduce him to his or her mistakes. And thus, we have to look at the person as somebody who can be redeemed, as somebody who can change. And thus, this criminalizing uh, phenomenon that we have in our midst loses its power.
1: Is that an argument you hear? By the way, that was all very beautiful, and I was especially um, struck by what you said early on about the comp- the kind of the image you painted of accompaniment. It felt kind of like the, I thought of the incarnation, right? Of God incarnating, being with us physically um, through whatever we go through, and how we can do that as a church, or as a larger body of humans. Yeah. But. Um, is that I'm curious? Is that an argument you get into with maybe other people of faith, with people who say these people have broken the law? You know, they have to, they have their consequences. Is this is this what you respond with? Or?
0: Yeah, you you know we have this prophetic mm-hmm. tradition also yep. that is part of our theological understanding of who God is in our midst. That you know, if you look at the Bible of our sacred text or our sacred books, they are always linking justice with temple you know with cult with worship Hmm. I mean we cannot dichotomize we cannot divide that for us is more than a theory it is a practice of love and compassion and that's why for me sanctuary right now what it means it's a call back to the core elements of our religious tradition which is compassion which is justice and which is love that breaks down any boundaries, any race, and any mistakes. I mean, that's at the heart of our traditions. Uh, We need to take hold of that look that is given to us through our faith Mm -hmm. traditions that speaks and proclaims that the person is sacred, that the person has a dignity that cannot be put into question. Because it is a dignity as given as a gift from the Creator, from our God.
1: What are the ways, I mean, maybe since you're sort of in the trenches and work, walking with people, what are the ways in which you see people being concretely dehumanized? So sort of the practices that they have to undergo, the, the experiences that they have to undergo?
0: You know, if you go to the room in Federal Plaza, there is, on the fifth floor nowadays, it was on the ninth. Now it's on the fifth floor. But you enter a room where there are doors on the sides, and there are people waiting to be seen, to be to check in, you know. And people go into their these rooms with not. There are only doors, and sometimes they don't come out. So you sense the the fear, even in the air. But when they call you and they know you by a number. That's the humanizing, and the number begins with a letter A for alien, followed by the sign, the number sign, mm. and then nine digits. Mm. That's how you are known in the system of immigration you know, by your A number. Uh, that's really, really, uh, it sets a dynamic that makes you less than human, and the treatment. That is given to you is less than human, because you don't have any guarantees, really, to be, in terms. Uh, uh, right now, by the arbitrariness and the force that the eyes, the Homeland Security employs, in terms of uh, look, if they look for you, how they come in, they are in riot gear. They come to your house. Mm. Uh, we are talking about people who have been here for many years, most of them, people who have been under uh, a magnifying lens, looking at them and seeing them and trying to see if they make a mistake and really uh, expediting them uh, into this system that spits them out of our society.
1: That's very helpful. Could you talk to me a little bit about the kind of moral arguments that people make. You just said earlier on that we need to respect the human person that is sacred above whatever mistakes or laws broken. But if we really want to talk about morals, morality, you could argue that the U.S. has a moral debt to pay uh, due to its involvement and responsibility in sort of creating refugees. Could you elaborate a little bit on that element of the argument? Because I know you've written about it before. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, because we are a receptive country. By that, in terms of immigration, you know, we we are a host. Many times the phenomenon of immigration is cut off from its roots. You know, we we as also immigrant activists of uh, human rights activists, we, we always are dealing with the result of these expulsions and misplacements of vast amounts of people. Uh, The economy has a lot to do with this uh, displacement of people because we have, like, there is this teacher in Columbia University here in New York who developed this model Mm cities concept. And, you know, like... Jeffrey Sachs? I I think so. Mm -hmm. I think so. And uh, the model series is based on this transnationals going into like Honduras on mm. uh, the coast of Honduras which is really pristine the most uh, costly uh, real estate in Honduras uh, which uh, whose land was owned by this garifuna which is an indigenous black community from many years back a uh, century back or even more before that Uh, that they were basically uh, tossed uh, by the government because they didn't want to deal with them and they took ownership of this ancestral land that right now is very much coveted by these internationals so they are coming in and they are building Mm. uh, these beautiful resorts with the promise for the inhabitants there that they will have a job and that their quality of life will, will benefit. When, in fact, when they set up these uh, resorts, you know, they put a guard
2: mm.
0: on, at the gate, and they basically are not, are not allowed in their premises. And the jobs, uh, I mean, there are some studies that can tell you that just it's minimal the amount of people that are being employed there
1: just to give you a bit of context to what he said, the Garifuna are a minority black ethnic group in Honduras. They're descended from escaped West African slaves and indigenous Caribs. So they settled in the eighteen hundreds on the north coast of Honduras on land granted them by the government. Their community actually faces a good amount of discrimination in Honduras, partly because um, they're black. And in the past few decades, a lot of real estate developers has been basically displacing that have been displacing them from their land and to take Take it over. Um, they're turning the, their white sand beaches into like luxury tourist developments. They're grabbing land to uh, plant plant palm oil plantations, and there's also a fair number of kind of drug trafficking that has been kind of pass, been passing through the area. So, the Honduras, uh, government Honduras has been pretty complicit in evicting them from this their land. You know, arguing that they're quote illegal squatters. And all of a sudden they've been there for like centuries. Now they're apparently squatting. Because, you know, it's not so nice to be walking out of your luxury spa or swimming pool and then see people living in wooden shacks, you know, with an eye distance. So I guess that's that's just too much for the tourists. And specifically, you know, one of the main luxury sites is a project called the Enduro Hotel, uh, which is, you know, part of Hilton Hotel and Resorts, a U.S.-based company. So it's pretty... All this is a pretty sad and upsetting example of capitalists working in tandem with the state to basically displace people. And it happens on a local level. I think we call it gentrification. And it happens also on a larger international
0: level. We have had in the last 20 years here in New York, we have a Garifuna community. As a result of that and Mm. as a result of the U.S. intervention in the military coup, over nine years ago, you know, when Zelaya was ousted, and which has direct connections with our military, you know, and our sponsorship of that terror. Uh, And as right now we are seeing also that the new president, uh, the widespread fraudulent elections of this president was blessed by the U.S. We are seeing not only the death of people on the streets in Honduras, and very much hidden to us you know but we are seeing the displacement displacement of thousands and thousands adding to the stream to the river that is coming up to the north river of people that are coming here to new york city and staying with us
1: hi to me again i'm just going to interject and provide a bit more context here so Juan Carlos referred to two things, a military coup seven years ago and, um, the recent elections of the current president of Honduras. So let's back up. First things first. In 2009, there was a military coup that ousted a democratically elected president, Manuel Zelaya, who basically had pretty good, like, center-left policies. He had raised a minimum wage, provided pensions for the elderly, free school lunches, subsidized public transportation, nothing too radical. But, um, It was still unsettling to the powers that be. So basically, in 2009, the military overthrew him. And there's some stuff about how he was trying to rewrite the Constitution because the Constitution was created in 1982, back when Honduras was ruled by a, well, still ruled, but also was then ruled by a U.S.-backed military dictator. So there's that kind of wrinkle in the story. In any case, the U.S. was involved in a coup in the sense that the leader of the coup... Uh, was a guy named Romeo uh, Velasquez, pretty cool name, uh, who was a graduate from the School of Americas, uh, established in 1946 during the Cold War. So it's a U.S. Army training program for Latin Americans to learn how to basically engage in political coups and murder political opponents. So they get military training. They're, from what I understand, a friend of a friend, of a friend uh, was actually installed there for a month as part of his 2 c rotation, and he called it basically dictator school. Uh, obviously because these coups often result in the installment of dictators. Um, he said they were basically, like, you know, sons, predominantly sons, from what I understand, of like, Latin American elites. So that's the coup. And um, it's also notable, I think, that the Secretary of State, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, took no action to condemn the coup, even though the UN General Assembly did so, many leaders of Latin American countries, which is unfortunately um, fairly standard as far as U.S. history in Latin America goes. There's a documentary actually, if you want to learn more about the school, it's called This School of the America's Assassins. And the other thing is also referring to the fraudulent elections of the current president. So that took place last November. So what happened was pretty sketch. Uh, the incumbent uh, president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, um, was a, is a US ally who's running for re election. So, opposed by this, from what I gather, a kind of TV star named Salvador Nazaraya who was leading a coalition of, you know, leftist, centrist parties. And Hernandez's context was part of the coup that overthrew Zelaya. Since then, he's basically taken control over all branches of government, including the judiciary. He, you know, regularly deploys a police to attack anyone who opposes him, activists, journalists, and has basically left, I think this statistic was 90% of crimes are unpunished at Honduras. Anyhow, so not everyone's favorite guy. Um, basically when 57% of the votes were in Nasiriyah, the opposition candidate had a five-point lead, which is like a pretty strong lead. So people were feeling hopeful. And then the election tribunal, tribunal, my pronunciation is not great, um, basically announced a delay, a 36-hour delay saying they were waiting for more ballots to come in, that some military trucks were going to come in with millions of votes from the rural areas. And after 36 hours of this delay the Results started swinging right back up into Hernandez in favor of Hernandez. So, um, unsurprisingly, there have been tremendous protests of this election, still pretty much ongoing. Uh, you know, I think the last time I read, 30 people have been killed this far, and the US has backed um, Hernandez's re election, as well as Mexico, actually. So, just to kind of circle back fully, we're talking about immigration, why are we going to in this tangent? I want to put on my like teacher hat perhaps a little bit here. So, you know, 65% of Hondurans live in poverty. Honduras has one of the highest murder rates in the world. And so, unsurprisingly, many Hondurans, especially unaccompanied minors, actually are coming to the US in thousands and thousands of droves, in droves of thousands and thousands of people. So for a while, many Hondurans were given uh, temporary protective status. About 57,000 Hondurans actually have the status, which is a status given to people who come from countries with armed conflict or natural disasters, it's a legal status. This past January, the Trump administration announced that it would terminate TPS, um, which is the acronym for Temporary Protective Status. There are currently more than 300,000 people with TPS, um, and the decision is being fought in court currently. So uh, I think we'll find out more in July, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I think what people uh, don't fully connect the dots over is, you know, yes, um, there's this focus on you know, people who are DACA recipients or TPS recipients and what to do with them and, like, do they belong or do not belong here, that's kind of political debates. But if we actually just zoom out and think about the fact that the U.S. has been pretty complicit in the uh, motivations in like, essentially displacing people from their countries such that they come to the U.S. And then once they come to US, the U.S., then closes its door and says, okay, now you have to go back to... Or countries where there's lots of violence, laws that we are largely responsible for. It's this like extremely kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, evil situation. Um, anyhow, I'll let us get back to the interview.
0: Right now, there is a a, a plan, mm-hmm. um, northern for the northern countries, which is Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, in in which each they. More or less, receive over a million dollars per day mm. on military aid and security training. Yeah. So, not only boots on the ground, but bullets in their pistols, uh, you know, and all the weaponized security that they can afford, you know. Uh, but it's been, you know, our tax dollars really paying this already corrupt. Uh, not only policing, but government that takes place in those Central American countries. We have to remember right now that the uh, average of uh, homicide in Honduras is even worse than in war zones like in Afghanistan or Iraq where we are Mm. waging wars. I mean, it's 10 times greater in El Salvador the, you know, the debts that yeah. we experience here in America. And we are talking about small, tiny countries like uh, the state of Massachusetts. And, you know?
1: you, and a lot of the violence is being, from what I understood, is being also perpetrated by state actors that are funded by American, yes. the
0: American dollars. Okay. Yes. And we have bodies of uh, political uh, democracies which they receive aid uh, to basically destabilize the economy, the country, Uh, to basically uh, brainwash by the election of what's taking place. This is not just, uh, you know, limited Mm -hmm. to Central America. Of course, of course. You are seeing that in Mexico. You have seen that since the, you know, early 20th century, even before that. So we rather have the stabilized uh, states and economies because it will. It's easier for the transnationals that come in and basically find the populated uh, areas mm-hmm. of land and the resources that you know are under that land. Uh, for example, the north of Mexico, you know, in Sinaloa, you have the second wealthiest gas. Resource that we know on the earth. And for the last 20 years or so, the cartels have been fighting that. which has resulted in the depopulation de- de of that area. The
1: cartels have been so... Fi- fighting. Fighting. Uh, fighting. fighting. Okay, yeah. So
0: there is this kind of cartel war. Mm-hmm. Well, under the, you know, war on drugs, yeah. you know, any whenever you hear the term war on drugs, you really have to question what's really going on. Mm. Because we have seen this tendency that this is justified for more violence and for more uh, deep for driving the population uh, out of those areas where there is petroleum or minerals uh, that these transnationals have, uh, corporations are coveting, you know?
1: Another interjection. So Juan Carlos, just a bit of a news update. The territory that Juan Carlos referred to is um, loosely called the Burgos Basin, which is essentially just south of the Texan border in the northeast corner of Mexico. You can Google it, this is map. So it's a land with a lot of uh, oil or sort of a shale, specifically. Not clear on the differences. I know they there are different. As well as uh, as Hong as Kong's reference, it's a territory of a lot of gang fighting. So as of March first this year, Mexico announced that it will auction development rights to private companies to tap uh, the oil, gas, and shale deposits in this territory. Uh, I think starting in September, and you know. Just so you know, this is a development that really started before Trump. It uh, was definitely part of the negotiations that it seems like President Obama had with current Mexican President Peña Nieto. I think one news outlet called this development a fracking bonanza. So there's going to be uh, lots of changes in that territory soon.
0: In the state of Son- uh, Sinaloa, Sonora, we have these companies already, you know, looking at the land because they know that the, is the second... Uh, wealthiest uh, gas it's resource. Like, okay, in so the world. like has the
1: most oil deposits or something like that. Okay, yes. so your 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 argument is that the American intervention, militarily, or economic, otherwise, is in part a, a cap is a capitalist endeavor, right? It's to clear the way for these trans multinational companies to come in and extract resources, and so okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. There, there is an economist that, that has really a great analysis, and I mean we can cite many mm-hmm. Chomsky and uh, Richard Wolf. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of uh, the economy, and I think he, he does point. You know, he always points out that it is uh, it is a system. You know, we cannot, you know, moralize also knowing that these economic political forces are very much. Uh, There is a stamp of officialdom by having uh, a Trump uh, as the face of this system. Mm, yeah. Uh, the system knows that even if Trump is taken out,
1: it'll still continue.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. The system will continue. Yeah. But we, they need the Trumps, you know, uh, to open the doors to this capital. Uh, to these uh, forces that really are creating havoc for many of us, for many of our communities. Uh, in, in that sense, you know, like going back to sanctuary, I, I, I think there is this call to, uh, to really think outside the legal box, because also the, right now, uh, when we reduce morality to legalize uh, uh, practice or to the law itself, we are doing an, an injustice to us because we have seen that the law more and more protects the the one in power. Yeah. And the, the, the law has been an instrument of oppression and repression for our communities. Mm. So we need to call that into question. Not without, you know, uh, we need to talk about more, uh, like for us immigrants, we need to talk about this new citizenship that we might be able to explore. Because the citizenship that we are being given by our governments, it comes with a lot of strings attached. Uh, It comes with this uh, horrible sense that, I mean, I am a citizen, but I cannot afford healthcare, Hmm. you know? I am a citizen, I make less money now that I used to make 20 years ago. Uh, You know, I am a citizen and there is less decency in the political discourse that I hear nowadays than 20 years ago. So what does it mean to be a citizen of this country? Mm. You know, does it mean that we have to carry a weapon into our schools? You know, how does that, my rights, impinge on the rights of others? You know, if am I going to be a citizen at the cost of the dignity of somebody else, is that really what we are aiming? You know, who are we yeah. as a nation? You know, when we walk on the street, walking right now, I, I saw this man, you know, no sacks, no shoes, most likely a veteran by the way he was dressed,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know. Where is our, you know, lip service to this culture that, on one hand, glorifies violence and our military complex, but on the other, you know, dehumanizes the person who fought for this country and comes back not to have a life, uh, you know, not to have the protections, not to have the whereabouts to lead a decent human life. Yeah, there, know,
1: there are sort of multiple uh, tracks. There's the legal fight, but then there's the economic fight. What is use of what is the benefit of a legal status if you don't have enough money, or well, the system does not provide you basic goods you need to even exist in this country? Um,
0: yeah, and you, you know, many of our families are, are finding that, that now that they have initiated this uh, legal process, they have to pay taxes. You know? mm-hmm. If they pay the taxes, many of them, they are losing you know 20 yep. percent of their paycheck, which, you, know, if you look at the salaries that they are you know, f- with eight dollars here, even the minimum here in New York, does not allow you to live a human, decent life, you know, let alone if you have a family. Mm-hmm. Of two or three, you cannot afford a good education.
2: You yeah.
0: Know? So it's a whole question, you know, of priorities. Really, how do we? And that's I think that's what sanctuary can give us a sense of what's valuable mm-hmm. nowadays, and it really questions, you know, where are we putting our money?
1: Yeah. Could you talk maybe in the last section um, about? Your personal story in all of this. So, I remember reading about how you grew up, in, you were born in Mexico. Yes. And then your family moved up ahead of you, and you decided to stay back because you were in a seminary to become a priest. And then, talk me through what made you decide to move and when you were with your family to decide to stay there yeah. in, a, in the United States. You know, States.
0: for us Mexicans, we have this uh, kind of schizophrenic ex- existence you know so i grew up in one, with one hand you know uh, kind of leading me to the north and upholding everything from the north that was great mm-hmm. and good and beautiful and on the other hand i had a hand that was bleeding and practically saying you know it's bleeding because of the north what? what the north is doing to yeah. me Uh, so we have this dichotomy so when my parents and my four brothers and one sister came to the states undocumented I was also very much opposed to that but I knew because uh, back in the 80s there was this devaluation so the mighty dollar practically uh, kind of vanquished our economy our Mm -hmm. Mexican economy my father was a businessman and he had the
1: devaluation of the Mexican
0: peso. The okay. Mexican peso, yeah. And so my father had uh, gotten a loan of pesos, but in, in dollar currency. Mm-hmm. So when we got a loan of a million pesos in dollars, that was back then, what, about $10,000 or whatever. When the next morning we woke up, we owed. Millions Hmm. of pesos because the peso was 12 pesos per dollar that time, and we woke up to 72 pesos per dollar. What was
1: behind the the devaluation at the time? I don't know if you recall. You're a young boy. I
0: cannot recall, but I I think there is this sense of corruption by our government.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, It's okay. Don't worry about it. Privatization. Sure, sure. And I, I, most likely it was the, the collusion that we were already seeing with the, the government and the the cartels. Mm. And the bad deals and the dishonesty of our governing body back then. Got it. But I think that devaluation came about because of that. And, but one day to the, to the next, we were, you know, we were middle class. And then all of a sudden, my father is striving to make ends meet. Yeah. So they had to move. And I didn't want to move. Mm. And I was already in the seminary, so I said, I stay, and you go. And it was like a boarding school, so I stayed there for practically two years. And when I saw that they were not coming back, that they were taking a little bit longer, I said, okay, i come and visit you. So I got a visa, and...
1: Just to be super clear, because that's a question I hear a lot from people who say, "Well, just because you're poor doesn't mean you have to come to America legally." You know what? Why? Why is it? not all poor people do that? So that's a question I hear a lot. And just to be clear, the, the stakes for your family. I think you have four siblings. You have about three siblings.
0: Five. Five siblings. Five
1: siblings. Um, if your father not pay off the loan, what would have happened to him
0: or your family? Uh, I mean we wouldn't have made it. I I don't think my father was a hard working man, but I think, you know, like our, the the thinking was my father came first and then my mother and my brothers. Mm -hmm. But the thinking was, you know, my father uh, can send back money and we can pay off the debts.
2: Mm. But
0: the devaluation was so drastic that we couldn't stay afloat. so my par my mother and my my siblings that stay behind, we began to really suffer this also kind of uh persecution uh, because we had from a middle class we had fallen into a lower class, and then my middle class relatives began kind of uh, looking down on us and blaming my mother and so there was a really bad dynamic mm. there. And to the point that my mother said, "Oh, forget this. Let's go."
1: Let's go.
0: So they pick up and left, and so they came. But I, I told my mother, I cannot possibly go to the States. You know, I, just uh, my my understanding of how the economic the economics work. But even then, you know, I, I saw a direct uh, link of my parents' situation to you know, to these mighty dollars, as I put it, this over-idealism of the North and the capital force upon our economies in Mexico, you know. Uh, so after two years of being by myself, I, I came to visit my family. And then when I visit visited, Back in 86, I realized that they were not going back to Mexico. So I had to make the decision of staying, and I did stay. And because I saw that in the church there was no much uh, bilingual ministers, bilingual priests, I I began to discern my calling with with one of the dioceses in New Jersey. Madison, New Jersey, and I went to college, uh, seminary college, and then I went to a, a Mondelein Seminary, which is a postgraduate mm-hmm. to do my master's in divinities there. And then I was ordained eventually as a priest in 1995. Uh, then I was ousted most likely but because of my politics. I was very much outspoken. Yeah. I came under the influence of the Catholic Worker Movement.
1: Yes, could you talk a bit more about that experience?
0: Yeah, I, I mean the Catholic Worker Movement is a pacifist, leftist group within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and you know uh, Dorothy Day mm-hmm. and Peter Maurin, their founders, were very much into hospitality. Uh, in many ways, I I think how I come into sanctuary is because of that mm. because radical hospitality is what we do you know uh, in terms of putting our bodies uh, so that the government does not tear families apart that's basically how we are setting ourselves in, in in terms when we do sanctuary for any family that come into our temples or our churches and you know we depend on the long tradition that our temples and our churches are sensitive spaces but are places where people can find refuge Mm -hmm. you know and this is all symbolic of course there is nothing legal about it but I mean I uh, we rely on that symbolism uh, because uh, those are places where people find some sense of humanity and dignity still nowadays.
1: Are you, well, just to clarify, are you saying that the, san- the sanctuary status that a house of worship has is purely symbolic? Yes. Tenic- there's nothing really legal preventing an ICE agent from coming in?
0: No, no, of- no. You have to remember, I mean, part of uh, the founding of this country has to do with that idealism, mm-hmm. you know, because people were being religiously persecuted. Yeah. And so coming here and knowing that they can uh, exercise, practice their religion without any mm. persecution by the government. Because this is tantamount to that mm-hmm. persecution. If people are being persecuted because they live in a temple or in a church, mm-hmm. you know, it's breaking that yeah, kind of common understanding, uh, which you know nowadays uh, I think even that it's in danger. Because of the escalating tactics of our government against, uh, you know, our institutions that are really uh, putting a moral face to this dilemma and to this phenomenon. Not only of immigration, you know, but, you know, the fracking community are very much being targeted. You have... Uh, the labor community also. Is it the fracking
1: community? Fracking, yeah. Uh,
0: People who, you know, who stand against fracking. Oh, the
1: anti-fracking, yes. Anti-fracking, you know.
0: So they are being persecuted, you know. So we thought, you know, I I always thought that uh, labor um, unions, labor uh, community centers were going to be the ones who were... uh, going to be the front line, mm-hmm. which are in many ways because I mean you look at the policies being implemented and they are undermining any kind of meaningful unionizing uh, uh, you know uh, in terms of labor. But I, I, I mean this kind of uh, explicit persecution and targeting of our immigrant leaders like Ravi Ragbier or Jean Montreville or other people in different states, you know, really has put into view, into visibility, you know, the concerted effort of Homeland Security to get rid, to squash
1: a movement. Could you... I, I want to ask you a bit about Robbie to close the quest- interview, but ju- just to go back quickly, and you mentioned ca- the influence of the Catholic worker movement. I think in your piece for the Guardian, you talked about the impact of the liberation theology. Would you speak to what really resonated with you and kind of formed, shaped you when you started getting involved with the Bergen brothers or Father Gutierrez or sort of people in the Catholic workers?
0: You see this... And
1: how you end up getting expelled from the Catholic Church or yeah, what have you.
0: The, the, This engagement with the world, you know, how do we dialogue? How do we become a a, a relevant voice and presence, you know, in our society? I I, I, I think if religion does not allow us to build those bridges, Mm. then religion becomes um, a drug or uh, nonsense.
1: Opiate of the masses, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes. So there has to be some kind of social capital or social contribution that religion has to offer. Not that transcendence has to be um, reduced uh, to the imminence, to the present, but it does have to give you a sense of connecting. I mean, and you look at the religion, it's, you know, religion, what does, uh, etymologically, you know, the root of the question is to, to, to connect, mm. you know? And I think there is something uh, evil, I will say, when in religion, instead of connecting us, does not. And, and in, in terms of building bridges, builds walls against each other, uh, I, I think there is something uh, inhuman, anti-human, when it does that. Uh, you know, like, uh, I do believe this, uh, you know, divinization is through the humanization of us. We, when we assume our humanity, when we accept mm. our humanity, and then that's when we are more God-like. More divine. More divine.
1: What happened with you in the Catholic Church exactly, and now you're in the Lutheran Church?
0: Well, eventually I mean at the beginning I, I think there was a lot of political um, i I have always been outspoken
2: mm-hmm.
0: I have always been uh, uh, basically you know the the seeking out of of the truth and justice has been always at the center of my own vocational history. And given that I am, I was undocumented for many years, you know, this fight with our our undocumented communities has always been at the center of my ministry. Uh, So I think uh, in many ways, the political ecclesial establishment uh, kind of ousted me because of some of my political activism and engagement.
1: Did they ever talk to you directly about it or was this kind of very subtle?
0: The last (laughs) time I was excommunicated was because we opened a Catholic, um, how do you call it? Catholic worker home Mm. in the Bronx. And they said that I used my title as a reverend. So that was the last excommunication. And by then, I, you know, it was like my fourth excommunication from the I didn't the Catholic know you can Church. be
1: excommunicated multiple times. I
0: guess that happens.
1: And then you can get reinstated and then excommunicated. Is that yes. how
0: it works? Yeah, you have to ask for forgiveness. There is a whole process of reconciliation. I did seek, the first one, I did seek the, uh, that process, and I was granted. But then uh, there was this always, you know, like, they said, "Okay, so get in contact with the bishop, with the office." So I used to call the office, and I used to get a answering machine that will tell me to call another. It was a very dehumanizing mm-hmm. bureaucratic process that I did not follow through in many ways. Um, so amazed
1: that you tried to get reinstated multiple times, but now it sounds like you're done and you're tired of that.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. but 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 you know, and I know. Uh, you know what I like about the Lutheran Church is this more horizontal process, mm. where you know the priest is not like a mini god running yeah. around and doing.
1: Which denomination the Lutheran? Uh, Elka, Yeah. Elka. Oh, El- oh, ELCA. Okay. ELCA.
0: Got it. Yeah. Uh, Evangelical Lutherans of America. Um, so, so I, w- what I have found is basically you know, in this community of faith, uh, really a restorative sense of, of justice. I mean, any institution, any religious institutions,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, it's not perfect. But at least here uh, with with the Lutherans, you have this sense of the social gospel being at the center mm. of things. Uh, because it is a community that is empowered by the spirit, you know and that sense I, I think has really resonated with me and with my th- theological practice
1: is that has always been your theology from a child or is that something you really grew into more this idea that religion has to be actively engaged with the horizontal with the imminence
0: i i think i had great uh, teachers mm. and my parents are pretty good on Practice in the faith. You know, uh, at the end of the day, I think what's going to distinguish us from any anybody in terms if they practice a religion is not so much practice a religion, but if you practice justice or not, mm. that's what's going to make us different.
1: Thank you. I wish I could, maybe we'll end with that, but I want to talk a little bit about how you and the New Sanctuary Movement have been doing in the past week or so. You've talked about um, how ICE's treatment of RAVI has sort of create, c- created a new paradigm almost for what uh, you now know ISIS is willing to do. Is that how? What has the impact of what has been going ahead on the organization?
0: Yeah, you, you know, uh, January 3rd, uh, Gene Montreville, a co-founder, one of the Haitian families that ousted himself back in 2007 as we were forming the coalition, the New Sanctuary Coalition here in New York. And he basically, you know, Jean, uh, who is a good friend, uh, basically said, you know, uh, when we talk about this phenomenon of, of deportation and immigration, we always think about a Latino or Latina person. We need to break that model. Mm. So he basically said, "As right now we know that, you know, the Haitians' TPS ending, we know that there is more than Latino and Latinas, you know, in this kind of a uh, fix, you know. Uh, so, but back then, it was pretty much in the shadows, you know. And basically, Jean Montreville's mission was, I want it give a face to my Haitian community. Uh, And so he ousted himself with us and we began forming this, uh, you know, loosely uh, organization made up of uh, partnerships with different religious institutions here in the city. And uh, um, so he was picked up on the 3rd of January Hmm. Uh, as he was coming back from work. Uh, And, I mean, he had his check-in two, three weeks later after that. But that kind of sent a message for us. You know, like, my first question that I remember asking Ravi, Ravi, is this a sign for us as the movement? And Um, how long
1: ago was this?
0: This is on the 3rd of January. January.
1: Okay, Yeah. yeah.
0: And I I remember calling Ravi and saying, is this a sign? Is this a message that they are sending to us? And I kind of had the idea. I said, yeah, you know, we got to really be careful. I think they are ex- escalating their persecution against us. And that evening, when I came here to Judson, uh, we were in a coalition. I was doing a... Interfaith meeting in Morristown, New Jersey. Because there is this... Uh, no sanctuary policies. It's welcoming policies. We are implementing some ADEJ in New Jersey, you know. In Morristown, New Jersey. So when I was coming back, I made a phone call to Ravi. And I said, everything okay? Yes. So I came in. And we began to notice that there are cars. Mm. Unmarked cars. Outside idling for hours by then and we told Ravi you cannot go out we gotta check your house so there were some people from our team that went to his house and there were four more cars
2: Mm.
0: at least four more cars and Mark waiting for him so we knew that they had uh, escalated against us. So Ravi took temporary sanctuary here at Judson. He didn't leave the place for five days or so, three days, um, until we went to talk to Makowski, which is the second in command because the director of ICE, Thomas Decker, here in New York was on vacation. And basically Makowski told us, because we wanted to inquire about Gene, You know, if we could do something about it because, I mean, it was an illegal apprehension also, like like Ravi's was, you know. And we basically said so, but he basically said, well, and we questioned him about the unmarked cars. And it was four of us ministers questioning him, and to our face he basically said, no, I didn't send anybody, and I am the one who sends out who deploys the force to apprehend somebody? Uh, so he lied to our face. Mm. Uh, then on the when you
1: mentioned the illegality of the apprehension, is it, the illegality? Could you just clarify that? Is it because it's supposed to happen? It's not supposed to happen procedurally in that way.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, he is complying with the law. I mean, like Ravi and Jean was complying with his Mm check-ins. This is going on over 10 years already. Mm -hmm. Okay? So there is no any sign of uh, what they call flee, uh, of risk, fleeting risk? Flight flight risk.
1: Flight flight risk. Got it. So the the legal grounds for deporting someone, is has to be they have a a flight risk associated.
0: Yes, and it's also constitutionally, you know, when you make your life here, and that George Forrest basically Mm -hmm. said it on her indictment against ICE, you know, when you make your life here, you, at least you have the decency to gather your things. Yep. You know? Of course. Uh, You You can't just
1: be... Removed,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are not a country that disappears, people. Mm. Unfortunately, that's what we have become. <laughs>
1: that's what we
0: become. Okay. So it was basically, on that sense, I mean, you need time to say goodbye, to gather your human affairs, mm-hmm. and you know, and to give a hug to your wife and your kids. You have made your life here. There is not a place that he can go back to, Ravi. Ravi has his family here. You know, his wife, his kid, you know, she's in college. Uh, his community, you know, the movement that he has built in the last seven, eight years, you know. Uh, so uh, in that sense, I mean, it's a violation of his rights. And I mean, the, now we have a federal legal precedent for that. You know, that you cannot just disappear, people. And, of course, it continues to be so, but hopefully we have this legal precedent precedent that will shield. And our strategy right now, because Ravi is the face of the movement here in New York City, you know, and maybe beyond, but our strategy is to really push policies. Because also, you know, when Ravi was detained on the 11th, how the police, how NYPD collaborated with Mm -hmm. ICE. That has to be clarified. The mayor has not said anything. Okay? And we are asking, we've been meeting behind doors. And that's why like four or five days ago the commissioner of of the police gave new guidelines or at least emphasize new guidelines for NYPD in terms of collaborating with ICE. You know, under what circumstances they can do that and they cannot do that. But we are basically pushing for a policy that is more, that guarantees more the stability, the emotional stability of our kids. I mean, we need to fight for policies like, you know, like I go around schools talking and I see that there is like these signs like you cannot sell drugs like 50 yards or whatever how many yards Mm -hmm. we should have policy that basically say this is an ice free zone Mm -hmm. three blocks around our churches and our schools and our hospitals Mm -hmm. people shouldn't be afraid or wondering when they go to school the ice might pick up their daddies or them themselves Mm -hmm. okay people shouldn't be wondering if they go to a hospital you know eyes is going to pick them up okay so we need to really reorganize so sanctuary is this call which is larger really Mm. in in terms of you know how do and drives the question you know how do we live decent human lives in this inhuman climate because that's what it's all about right now. You know, the bullying that comes from the top down is really making our lives, the, the quality of our lives is suffering in very tangible ways. I think we can invest on the healthcare of everybody. We can invest in better education and in better facilities, and we can invest in terms of bringing solution to a system that is not broken, a system that is designed to work this way by terrorizing and by putting money on the pockets of a few people.
1: Thank you, Juan Carlos. I appreciate you coming down to um, speak. And that was Juan Carlos Ruiz, uh, co-founder of the New Sanctuary Movement here in New York City, and he's also a Lutheran priest. Uh, I'm Sarah Noon, host of Religious Socialism Podcasts. And our, our producer is Devin Brisky. Our sort of sponsor organization is the Democratic Socials of America. Please leave us an iTunes rating if you have an uh, extra five seconds. It helps us out in terms of search rankings, um, share on social media, and obviously check us out on our Patreon page. Um, we would love to kind of get a sense of like, does this podcast mean something to you? uh in a way that you know you want to support and sustain yourself it'll help us i think kind of make some strategic decisions as to what to do with this podcast over the coming year so thank you so much